You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. With Drake releasing Way Too Sexy with rappers Future and Young Thug as the first single from his sixth studio album, Certified Lover Boy, the track I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred, which this track from Drake relies heavily upon, has come back into focus. A worldwide hit in 1991, I'm Too Sexy even topped the US charts. Written by Richard and Fred Fairbrass, along with Rob Manzoli, it's a track which has seeped into popular culture over the years. I called up with the brothers Richard and Fred to talk about their journey to recording their most famous track and how it has stood the test of time. Well, this is an absolute pleasure. I mean, really, an amazing pleasure because it takes me back to my sort of heyday on MTV, <laughs> which is wonderful. So I'm thrilled uh, to be here with both of you today. And Thank we're you. all of a similar age. So, you know, yeah. oh, we yeah. can be nice and honest and talk about our lives in a really uh, hopefully honest and open way. Um, right. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was really about your, when, when you were growing up and um, what sort of music did your parents listen to and what sort of music did you then start listening to? How did you react against their taste? Dad <laughs> right. didn't listen to any music. Mum listened to Dean Martin. Yeah. Uh, Frank Sinatra. Trini Lopez. Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller. Then we got some friends of theirs who, who now looking back, I think it was a gay couple. But at the time, you just, because I was a kid, I thought just mates. But they went, these two guys went travelling. Oh. Sorry, there's a top of the door. And they left us with a huge collection of records, at which point I got into early Motown, um, early Stones, um, a little bit of Beatles. Um, so that was what we were, when we were very young. That's what we grew up on. And then, and then after that, I, st- um, I started getting into, well, we both did. We got into rock initially. We were Deep Purple fans. Led Zeppelin. Led Zepp. Um, uh, Yardbirds, I liked um, Credence, and then um, then I thought I think through the seventies we started discovering a bit of electronica, um, the whole New York scene. I thought bands like uh, 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 Television I liked a lot. We saw what about personally music? What music did were you were you pushed into um, learning music? I mean, no. I remember as a kid. My mum, you know, bought a piano and then off I went and had piano lessons. By the time I was 12, she sold it because I was so bad. Okay. <laughs> but but no, were, I, you, were you sort of brought up in a way that, that uh, they wanted you to play music? They wanted you to learn no. music? Not at all. No. no. So how did that come about? Well, we sort, of just, we sort of slid into it, really. I mean, Fred started playing guitar when he was how old? 11 or 12. 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, and writing songs, and I remember thinking, and he would p- pass the ideas past me, kind of thing, just to see what I thought. And I remember thinking they, that some of them were pretty good, and some of the lyrics were good. Um, and then we just, and I think really the, the prospect of any ordinary job didn't really appeal to us, to be no. honest, honest with you. You know, I couldn't see myself doing a, we don't take orders very well, which is why we have a big problem with what's going on right now. Um, so we, we tended to be search out an alternative way of living. We, we initially ran a gym in Putney, um, but, but prior to that, we had been doing gigs. We started doing gigs in London in the late mid to late 70s. Mm, we, we, we did a lot of man, manual labour. Yeah, but it was voluntary, really. And, and it, yes. was, it, was, um, 
it was a bit like joining the services. What I liked about it was you met people that you wouldn't normally meet in any other way, in yes. any other walk of life. You know, you met all sorts of weird and wonderful people doing mm. that. Um, and what did your mother think of you actually sort of pursuing at, at the start? I mean, not just playing music at home and playing the guitar, Fred, but yeah. sort of um, also then making a decision and saying, okay, we're going to sort of pursue this in some way. Um, because I could imagine that my parents would have sort of looked at me and sort of laughed, you know. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, I remember being taken for a walk by Dad, um, and this was probably about three years before the band, three or four years before the band took off, because uh, he died before the band happened, so he never saw it. Um, but he took me for a walk, and he was just thought, sort of fishing about, you know, how old you are and, and uh, have you made any money and um, what you plan to do with your life. And that kind of, he wasn't, he wasn't being, you know, he wasn't saying don't do this or do that. He wasn't being, you know, confrontational in any way. He was just curious to find out what we were thinking. And yeah. of course, you know, at our, at our, we were both in our early 30s when the band broke. And there sure. were, um, and late bloomers. Yeah, we were late bloomers. So, you know, the, for them, for mum and dad, I think it was a pretty worrying time. Mm. You know, they, they were both quite tolerant because mum was a, a good dancer and but mum was mum grew up in poverty and um so um single parent back in the 30s and 20s and late 20s and 30s was quite a big deal back then and they were always running from landlords she told us how she used to live and hiding behind the sofa hiding. when the rent man came yeah you know? i mean the whole stuff and you know the sharing you know sharing clothes with her sister and you yeah. know, not always a lot of food on the table dad came from a bit of money um, but after the war, Second World War, he wanted to be a farmer, couldn't, so he became a printer. So they both didn't do what they passionately wanted to do. They both had been forced or driven into not fulfilling their dreams. So when they saw us trying to fulfill our dream, I think they were more passion, more patient yeah. than they otherwise would have been. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think and that's a really had... interesting perception because I think parents of our generation, which were war parents, yes. Um, you know, they, they didn't get the opportunities that no, no. we did, so they saw that saw it completely different. They did, they did very much so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, Richard, you wanted to say something. Yeah, no, I th and I think they um, they were much more, as Fred says, they were much more patient with us. Um, and I, I mean, one, one of the things I can remember really clearly, with Dad, you know, Dad worked in London, so he was taking the train to and from London for sort of 30 years, on and off, 40 years. And on one occasion, you know, he struggled through the tube and through the, on the train with, a, with an acoustic guitar. In a, in a huge cardboard <laughs> box that must have been an absolute bloody nightmare yeah. you know, to carry and to yeah. all the, you know, the crush of people. Um, but he, he, there, that, there was that level of support there. Yes, there was. Um, yeah. One of the things back in the day, I mean, and it, which, which was surprising to me, was when they were at school, when they were trying to teach you, you know, music appreciation and how to play, play the piano or whatever it was, they never really made it clear that you could make money at it. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, if you can play the piano, you don't even have to read, but if you can play the piano, um, you can get some, you can earn money in a pub pretty much anywhere in the world. We well, used, well, used to be able to. Used to be able to, yeah. yeah. You know. So there was, I think Dad was of that opinion. He, you know, it was a jolly good to be in a, play music and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to earning money, you're going to have to knuckle yeah. down and do mm. a job. I think deep down, that's what mm. he thought. But I, I, I had a teacher know. at school physics teacher who slapped me around the back of the head because I was playing, I was waiting for the class to open. I took my guitar to school a lot so I could practice in breaks and stuff. And uh, I was sitting there playing 
And he's, you know, stupid. I can see I'm holding a guitar and playing. He said, what are you doing, Fairbrass? So I'm playing my guitar. And uh, he said, you can't make any money out of that. I said, well, Paul McCartney does. He went, bang, yeah. smack around the head. Yes. <laughs> I hope he lived long enough. That's all I can say. I really did. Because yeah. <laughs> then he might think differently. Um, yeah. The first band that I read about was the actors. Now, I've been trying to yeah. look and find anything on, on the actors, and I couldn't find anything. What, what sort of band was it, and what sort of music did you play back then? The actors was sort of, um, it was pop, but it was a little bit odd. We had some. We had a very, very good guitar player called Mike Gerrard. So we 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 gave him the room to be quite experimental, and, and we did quite long instrumental sections. Mm. Uh, although, and it was quite energetic most of the time. Perhaps sort of power poppy. A little bit power poppy, yeah. but with sort of moments of instrumentals thrown in. So we we were on the, we our first tour was 1978, and we were on the road with Suicide, who were a New York duo, electronic duo, and through that we did gigs with. Um, uh, Joy Division yeah. and I think the Addicts and some other bands um, but we never really fitted in we always we, 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 we weren't really we were upbeat but not punky and the whole Thames beat and power pop thing passed us by, passed yeah. us by. so we, were, we had a lot of interest we got, we got picked up by various little independent labels where nothing happens then we got uh, we got some very good reviews and basically the thing just petered out after about three years yeah. and then Richard and I picked up um uh, but then we went, moved to London pretty much and then we started just writing with other people playing other bands so um, we, we've got a lot of memorabilia from the actors we've got um, posters uh, posters and, and, a, and quite, extensive, quite an extensive gig sheet yeah and we did you know the Nashville the Marquee uh, Hope and Anchor yeah we did pretty much all the main gigs in London and which they've all gone and colleges you know um, so we did that and then we basically we, we just morphed from one band to another we were in a, again we were in and out of record deals um, all through the 80s some appalling and I'm pleased they just didn't happen um, <laughs> and then the biggest deal we signed was Capital EMI in America in New York uh, and again that just didn't happen. The the money disappeared into somebody's back pocket. Um, we never actually we we completed the um, sort of album demos, but we never even started the album. The money just went. Yeah. So um, at which point, this is like nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight. Which point we just think we're not interested in a record deal. Fuck these we, people. We got really bored of the idea. Yeah, yeah, I got tired of asking for permission. I got tired of waiting for them. So we just said, look, so that, that was the idea. When we eventually recorded Don't Be Sexy, the whole point of that was, and us meeting, hooking up with Rob Manzoli, was to let's write a song that none of us have written before. So we, all your ideas we don't want to hear and all our ideas you're not going to hear. Let's write a brand new song. So, um, can I take you back a bit though before we get to the to because I want to go back to the 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 era where you know where you were on stage and you toured and you were supporting Suicide and you were you know, and and these really you know big artists. I mean, Suicide was a a very instrumental artist in terms of electronic music, you know, people look back and 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 absolutely groundbreaking. Well, yeah, they were they were really groundbreaking. What did you learn from them, and what do you feel that they may have gleaned from you? Because people always say what they learn from other people, but they never ever offer what they feel like other people may have taken from them. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the only thing I, I didn't, I had never experienced electronic music 
until I heard suicide. I didn't know anything it, about it. It was a head fuck, wasn't it? It, was, I, it really was. And I didn't like it. I, I thought it was far too loud. And, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I suppose I, I, I was a bit out of place, really, because I kept, we came from the countryside, a very sort of conservative town. Um, and then we were mixing with all these alternative type people. And, and I didn't house. truly understand what was going on. I don't think that I would, unless Fred you know, says different, I don't think they gleaned anything from us at all. The, the one no. thing that I gleaned from them was, the, was volume. That's what I got. And the importance of the of the base end, I suddenly was really aware of that. But okay, tell that, me about that. What is what is the importance of the base end? What is important? Well, it, it's it's um, the the, the base. Um, it's a frequency. That's it's, it's the sub base they use. Yeah, the sub base sure. they use, and also the base as a, as an instrument can color a, a track completely. Um, it, it it can define the personality of a track much more than I than I thought it could. Um, and I can remember we, we did a gig in Leeds, I think, and the gig was in this in, in this rather isolated kind of uh, club that I, I seem to remember. And we had gone off after the sound check to get a bite to eat, and we were walking back to the gig. And, and 50 yards from the gig, you could hear this, <laughs> this noise. And that's when I suddenly thought, this is, I'd never experienced it before. I, I didn't, because all the, you know, all the bass players that I've grown up with, Paul, I mean, Paul McCartney or, you know, Bill Wyman or whatever, you know, that whole sub-bass thing was new to us, completely new to us. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, so I think we learned, and the one thing that I think other people can learn from us, the only thing is perseverance. Well, I think that's what... I, I think that's the one thing. Really. I, yeah, I, I think yeah. That's, that's what we, we got from Suicide. They, they've got a lot of friction from the audiences. Most of the audiences were pretty hostile mm. um, to them, and they just stood their ground. They did not flinch. Um, Martin, um, uh, Alan Vega was just, I didn't realise at the time, but he had, he was a pretty ballsy guy. And uh, he would just get on and do his thing. And sometimes he, he, he went along to a script to a certain degree. He stuck to the song. But he also, because the, 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 the uh, relentless groove and keyboards that Marty Rever set up, um, they were really uncompromising. Completely, and basically, and he, you know, he wouldn't take any shit. No, he wasn't. A like, he wasn't a big guy, but he wouldn't take any shit from anybody. A bit like that clip of um, Twisted Sister. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> Where the guy just goes completely. Yeah, at, at Reading, at Reading. Yeah, you know? and, um, I, and I, I, I admire bands like whether I like their music or not, it's irrelevant. It, but I, I admire these bands that just this is what we do. If you don't like it, fine. Yeah. If you do like it, great. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, you have to be like. That. There's not much. There was very little compromise. I don't think they learned anything from us. But one thing also I learned from them is that musicians should stick together because we got screwed on the tour a couple of times, mm. and they put their foot down and they said the band needs a hotel room. Fine one. They were very adamant about that. You can't. When you say the band needs a hotel room, didn't the band have a hotel room? No, no, no. We know <laughs> what, what did they? What were they thinking? Where the well, fuck are you going to sleep? In the van. In the van. In yeah. The van. <laughs> but the the, 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 the the there was no room in the van because the van was full of suicides gear. We part of the deal was we would we were we were the support band, the the uh, roadies and the PA. and the PA the PA high guys. Yeah. So we supplied everything, and that's how we got the tour. So we couldn't have slept in the van if we wanted to because all, all, all the shit was in there. So they were very at this. You can't not put these boys in a fucking hotel room, you know, and they were very adamant about that. And one day we didn't get paid. So between them and our drummer, Tommy O'Donnell, who was also very um, ballsy, ballsy, 
they just went into <laughs> they just went into the promoter's office and and threatened him basically, and the, and, the, and the money appeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and you learn you, you do learn on the circuit um, in the when we started off. You you have to develop a thick skin, and you yeah, you have yeah. to develop you know a, a fairly aggressive attitude, uh, if only in self defence, because uh, everybody's out to. I mean, there was one, at one gig, I shan't name where it is, but the landlord was arrested because when they, if they found all the ba- lots of bands that had been playing down there, half their gear was up in his bedroom. It was nicking it. He was nicking it while. <laughs> and clothes. And clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, I you, think we're getting to the core of what was behind yeah, you know. him now. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you have to, if, when you leave the stage uh, for after sound check, you have to take all your pedals with you in case they get mixed. Even before, we, we, occasionally yeah. we get an encore. Um, in, in the early days, occasionally. And we were at the Rock Garden, we got an encore. When I walked back on, all my pedals are gone. Yeah. Someone had just leaned over and nicked all my pedals yeah. and just fucking walked out of the club. Yeah. And so we, we, we grew a fairly um, aggressive attitude towards the industry. Um, we, we, uh, we, just, we were quite trusting to begin with um, and still too trusting for years, a few, few years after that. Mm. But overall, we're, we're fairly cynical and, um, and we're quite um, aggressive in certain, in certain um, situations. If, people, yeah. if we think people are just taking the piss, then we have um, explained to them in no uncertain terms that this is, could end very badly for them. So we have, we, do, we have gone down that road a couple of times because we just won't, we won't be um, fucked around like that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's yeah. why management has always had trouble. We, but one, that's why we haven't really settled with management at yeah. all, ever. Yeah. Because management rarely, or the management we've had, rarely sees things as we do. Um, and that's where the, the, that's where the friction... Uh, and they're compromised. People, and management are always... Everybody's compromised one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so and we had one guy, I think, who, um, who was charging us for flights to go and do some business on our behalf to Germany or wherever it was. And then we found out he was also doing business for about four other bands. And probably charging them. And charging them too. <laughs> so, yeah. You yeah. know, you, you just live and learn. Amazon's got the best deals on Black Friday. All the best deals are on Cyber Monday. Friday comes first when it comes to saving. Monday's worth the wait to what you've been craving. Deals so good it'll feel like stealing. Real cool message, could you make it less appealing? What's with the beef? You can get that too. Won't you call us? What's triggering you? Whichever day you're shopping on, you'll save a bunch at Amazon. On Black Friday, Cyber Monday too. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I think the music industry for a long, long period, and maybe even today, because I'm not that associated with it anymore, but for a long, long period was very corrupt. It always reminded me of my father, who was a market trader. And... You know, and behind the market trader, there were always friends of his who were would disappear. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. We'd never know whatever what happened. happened to the man yeah. with the teddy yep. bears down the road, sort of, yeah. and, and all these sort of things. Um, one of the, we were talking sorry. about this. One of the things, very briefly, is that because the I mean, back in the day, there was a load of money swashing, sort of swilling around in the business. You know, one way or the other, with tours and massive sales and all that kind of stuff. So that it, it attracted a whole load of, of, of fairly unpleasant people who thought they could make a killing fairly quickly. Mm. 
The music industry does not have that, that, that money anymore, anything like it used to, and bands certainly don't because the, the sales have dropped and touring is much more difficult and expensive than it ever was. So you, it, it's probably not a bad time now in terms of you know, anybody that was in the business for the wrong reasons has probably you know, gone into something else now. I don't Maybe. know what. You know, so I, I don't know. We hope so. Yeah, we, we would hope so. The business doesn't need, uh, doesn't need people like that. But generally speaking, you know, we, I, I think most bands live and learn. You get, every band gets ripped off in one way or the other. Mm. Our story is not particularly unique. You know? No, it's not. Yeah, well, I think one thing that is unique about it is that you cut your teeth over the years in various areas. Like Richard as a session musician, yeah, yeah. and maybe you can tell me what a session musician—I oh, can't even say the word—what a <laughs> session musician really does. Um, are they are they just there to actually play what the artist wants, or do they contribute in some way? Well, I mean, the only the only way I play—I mean, I'm slow, so I'm not the most um, you know the most uh, economically <laughs> viable session musician out there. <laughs> you know, um, and I wouldn't want to do anything where I couldn't put ideas in. I mean, that, that's the whole, that, that's the enjoyable part. I think it depends what kind of, I imagine if you're the bass player with Steely Dan, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's note by note by note and you missed a quaver there. So can we do it again and all that? You know, that's my impression. Um, whereas if you're, a, you know, if you're the bass player with Lou Reed or somebody, then it's probably a little bit looser. Yeah. It depends on the act, but I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I enjoy coming up with ideas. So it just, you know, just being instructed to do this or to do that would not appeal to me greatly. So yeah, what, did you, what did you bring to Boy George? What did you bring to Mick oh, Jagger? Well, the, the, the Mick Jagger stuff we both did, and that, that wasn't, a, they weren't studio sessions. They were promo sessions. Yeah, yeah. They were promo gigs. Um, and same with David Bowie. Um, but the stuff, um, stuff I did with Dylan was live. So that was just basically playing what had already been pre-recorded on tracks. They just wanted the track to sound the same. So I was the second guitar player. Uh, Red Beach was the first guitar, uh, guitar one. So I was basically doing rhythm parts, pretty basic stuff, really. Um, and so, we, so we, we, were never, we were never in the studio. We were never hired in studios because people wanted to hear our ideas. Um, <laughs> that, that, that never happened. Um, no. and, and it does. We, we have used a lot of session players. And they are generally incredibly competent musicians. Rarely are they very inventive. They are. They tend to have a, a way of playing and, and or approach to music that's quite conservative. Um, you get you get exceptions like Phil Spaulding, who played bass with us. He was very inventive. We had a drummer called Chuck Saber, yeah. very inventive guy. Um, most of the guitar players we work with are very conservative and you know don't really think outside the box. Um, but we've been blessed. We've, we've worked with some very, very good players. But in terms of invention, uh, there's only there's only a handful who've been very inventive. Yeah, I, th yeah. I think in actual fact, we learned more from that experience working with those people. Yes, yeah, we learned more from that than we did um, from you know doing the doing the sort of the the, the stuff with the, with the band in the early days. So, what did you learn? Well, I learned that basically. There's nothing particularly unique about it. There's nothing particularly... These people are all people. Yeah. That's what they are. David Bowie was just a bloke, you know? And so, you know, when people get... I, I've never had a hero ever in my life, you know, because I recognise the simple fact that they're all people. And mm. as Bob Dylan said, even the President of the United States has to stand naked at some point. So once you get that in your head, and I remember when I did the Bowie thing, I walked past his Winnie Bago and he was standing there in his underpants. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's a bloke. <laughs> it's just a bloke. Yeah. You know? And they would, 
I don't think David Bowie was like this, but there are certain stars out there who want us to believe there's something close to the angels, something close to God. They're not. They're just people. And uh, some people, some of them are immensely gifted and some of them are less gifted, yeah. but they are just people. Yeah. We did a show with, um, with James Brown in uh, Boston mm. and uh, he, yeah. he, uh, he came, he, the limo drove up the side of the stage and he came out and became James Brown for 20 minutes. And, and, and same thing, he was just this guy, just this, this dude who'd been around a long time. He's got this brilliant legacy. He, he saw green suit. He had a green suit and he did 20 minutes. The band played for about an hour and a half, but he only did 20 minutes. Yeah. And, um, and he was just a bloke and he said hi and bye and that. Do you know what I mean? He, he wasn't, he was just this guy who was, happens to be quite brilliant. Mm. Um, and I, and I think that's what we've, that's what we've discovered. We've done a lot of shows with a lot of different bands and, you know, all sorts of people. Um, and and I met lots of famous sort of people. Most of them are just regular people. And most of them are quite nice. The, the, the egos and stuff tend to happen, in our experience, tend to happen look further down, further the, down. Further yeah. down the food chain, particularly, particularly bands that have been put together as a project where, in fact, they have no control because that's been, that's that's that that's the that's the deal that's the nature of their deal and they tend to be a little bit more egotistical and and, and defensive and demanding and demanding because I think they know that in reality they're not actually in control at all. Well, it's the spinal tap moment. Isn't yeah, it? When it the is, meat yeah. doesn't the meat doesn't fit the role. <laughs> yes, you know, it's that, yeah, sandwich, you know yeah. he's obsessed with the meat fitting the role because that's the, that's where the only power he's got left. Yeah, left. Right, yeah. You know, because um, there's a whole bunch of people around you telling you where to go, what to do. Mm. And also, we've never been um, dazzled by the fame thing, particularly. Uh, we, we've, we've always uh, seen, not seen through it. That, that implies that we're special. But no, it's, it's just... It we didn't like it. We just didn't like it, really. You know, the red carpet thing. And I don't know. I just, it was... We just, maybe... I don't know what it is. I don't know. We just weren't... I remember once we went to... We were invited to a big red carpet thing and John Travolta was there and the whole thing, you know. And we get there, Leicester Square, back in the day, hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of people, you know, the red carpet and the theatre, lights everywhere. And we got there and um, simultaneously our hearts just sunk. It was like, oh, this is going to be awful. This is going to be... We didn't think, oh, hey, this is going to be great. So we went up, there's a pub just up the road from Leicester Square and we went and got bladdered in there. And completely, and then we managed to do it. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, we're drunk. So, yeah. um, I love that red carpet thing because sometimes people walk up it and they don't get noticed, so they sneak yeah. around the back and then they do it again, yeah. try it again, <laughs> and then you think, "Oh I my know. god, that's so sad." But do you think then, like the image that are, that the music industry can build up for you, whether it's yes. a record company or whether yeah. it's I don't know from your own management, can be, can be a dangerous thing for your own life. Oh, completely. Yeah, very much so. And also you start to think, first of all, you think that you think it's very easy to forget you're self-employed and you actually are in control of your own destiny because record labels and managers have no interest in letting you know that. So what happened with us when the, we, we, we had no intention of becoming famous or being celebrities. We just wanted to put a record out, which was I'm Too Sexy. That was it. And the nature of that record took us into very much a celebrity world, very much Saturday night, Friday night TV, tabloids we didn't know it was going to happen we had, I never talked about it never mentioned also, once i think we thought everybody did it <laughs> yeah we did this is yeah how, this is how this is the business this is what yeah. it is and then you know gradually you realize over time actually you don't have to get up at five in the morning to do some cookery thing mm. you know on tv in the morning you don't you know if it's not part of what you are 
it's, you know, it, it's really, really important to know who you are and, and not get sidetracked by the people around you. We definitely got sidetracked. And we got sidetracked in the, for the first four or five years. We were definitely sidetracked. Um, I mean, one of the things about I'm Too Sexy, you mentioned it already, is the bass line, is that yeah. you know, there's this strong bass in it. The other mm. thing is that you had a period of living in New York, which I think contributed to the idea. Very and also so. the fact that I don't know whether you owned a gym or you were working in a gym, but working. you're working in a gym. And, yeah. and also that working in the gym contributed to the yes, idea. Can you put all those things together and tell me about how that really came up over those years? Um, well, the New York thing, we went to New York to um, become famous. You know, that's, that's where, well, that's well, sort of, yeah, get a deal. Get a deal and do all something. That, do something. Um, <laughs> New York was really good for us, I think, looking back. Because we were on our own, we had mum and dad were not there to, to rescue us. We were on our own. Um, we were living in a, in a crack house basically, and um, uh, and when working. I was working in a gym. Fred was working in some dodgy cafe down t- downtown. I was working on the uh, in the Astor Place. In Astor Place. Yes. Um, so I th- it, it put us on our metal a little bit, um, and and I think we became much more independent minded, independently minded, and. Uh, and a, and, a, and a little bit more aggressive, I think. Mm. Um, New York doesn't it doesn't take prisoners back. It, well, yeah. may, I don't know. What it was like slightly. Now. It was just pre Giuliani, so mm. it was very. It was still you know the, the rotten apple, if you like. It was very loads of loads of um, violence on the streets. It was very fast paced. It was it, it it wasn't in the slightest bit empathetic to your how you were feeling that day. No. And we learned the hard way. We we came up with, we came across some pretty scary people. And um, and we just thought, well, we got about that. We, we, we Richard worked in Nell's, which was a very famous club. Um, we worked. Uh, Richard worked in the gym. I worked in uh, uh, art cafe and somewhere else. And and these were all quite these. Were, the art cafe I worked in was sort of where the um, the a lot of the um, traders would, would would come and drink and eat. <clears throat> Lots of beautiful people floating around and stuff. And um, and that's. And also we got involved in where well, we, we met quite a few sort of um, not celebs, but they, the nightclub people, you know, you know, that, that lot. And so it was it, sexy came out of that. It was, it, we, yeah, there were these people that were basically too sexy for their shirt. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, then when we got back to the UK, we worked in the gym. And so you come a lot across, across a lot of hedonism, narcissism, um, and that's partly when we started writing the lyrics. That's what we fed off. We just yeah. thought this this is what this is about, you know. Well, I think and you threw away all the tracks in the past. You said that yeah. earlier that you decided you didn't want to do anything you'd done before. You wanted yes. to do something completely different. Yes, that, yeah. that's pretty much. We did uh, the chorus of Deeply Dippy. Oh my, I love that one. Well, that's, a, that, that's an old chorus we had yeah. from a from a previous song. And that just happened to fit that song. So we did, we, we rescued that. But yeah. everything else was, was brand new. Yeah. One of the things that's weird, I think, is that people say to us, oh, you know, when it comes to this whole COVID thing, oh, you know, we're really surprised you guys are speaking out, you know, because I'm too sexy, you look so... I think people assume that we were going to be pliant, either stupid or pliant or something. Mm. Um, but actually, you don't, you don't make a record like I'm too sexy if you're obsessed with what people think. No, you don't, know. You just don't. Because it's, it's, it, it, when I listen, when I think about the track, it's, it's so bizarre, really. And I didn't realise that it was bizarre at the time, but we had nothing to lose and we didn't really care what people thought. Mm. Well, I, th- I think it was obviously ironic, but then I'm English. So yes, I yes. sort of see the ar- irony. But I can imagine mm. in America at that time, 
Yeah. But maybe it was seen as something else because well, irony doesn't really exist so much. It no, it doesn't. doesn't. No. no, I mean, the Americans were overall way more supportive than the, the, the music industry and the media in America were way more supportive than the UK. Mm. Uh, from the very off, we had uh, endless problems with the media and certainly the music business. Music business couldn't fucking stand us, um, and uh, I can see why now. Yeah, and uh, and, and, and yeah, and, and even it was. I think it was partly because they knew they'd all thrown away the opportunity to sign a very lucrative song. Uh, I think that that annoyed them that we proved them to be so wrong, um, and also it was because we 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 called them out. We just we we were pretty um, not unpleasant. What's the word? We, uh, we, we did. did we, we weren't in awe of them at all. And once Sexy kicked off, we and when Sexy was massive, we still weren't signed. It was only a letter of intent. It was just an email of intent. And suddenly Sony and the rest of the sort of it bods steamed in with crazy money to lure us away. We said, well, you didn't want it in the first place. Why do you want it now? So it's clearly not a musical decision. You just want you just want the money. So we stuck with the independent label, which was a good idea and a bad idea e- equally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but it, but it, it, um, it dawned on us very quickly how our, we weren't that popular with the industry because when we went to the Brits in 90... Three or was it two? Uh, three, I think. Two or three. I, I yeah. can't remember. No, two. It was two. Was it two? And we were clearly the breakout band of that year. We clearly were. We had number one in America, as a, you know, and they just blanked us. Brits just blanked us. So we, at, at that point, I just thought, okay, we're not part of the BPI, this record label. Um, we don't fit. This is this is how this is going to go. I think it's the fitting thing. That, yeah. I think it's the fitting yeah. thing. We just, you know, we weren't pretty. We weren't 22. We didn't <laughs> dance. Do you know what I mean? We just, you know, we were a bit mouthy. Mm. I just think we, we, we you know, and the, the, the track that I'm Too Sexy was a bit of some, it's, it's a Marmite track. You know, you either love it or you hate it. Part two of the Right Said Fred podcast looks at their lives after I'm Too Sexy and how today their legacy is starting to be seen in a different context. If you like the podcast, please rate and look out for the other interviews. I'll see you soon. Thank <laughs> you.